How about instead of trying to identify gaps, we applaud children and young people for what they dealt with and ask them what extra things they learned while they were away. That is a quote by an educator named Sue Cowley. Good morning, or good evening, or good day, wherever you are. My name is Steven, and today is episode four of Apples and Coffee. And we are talking about pandemic teaching, returning to the classroom. I have two amazing guests with me today, one returning, one new, and I will have them introduce themselves right now, starting with our new guest. My name is Nadia Helmi. I am a good friend of Steven. We met uh, through Teach for America, and we were both in the same core. Um, so that's just like a little bit of an introduction into how I got involved in education. Hi, my name is Patrick Joyner. I am a teacher, formerly a seventh grade teacher in Augusta, Georgia. I am now transitioning to teaching in Japan. Today, we're going to explore teaching coming back to school, that 2020-2021 school year. During part one, we explored what it was like going home and being thrown into remote learning out of nowhere and what that experience was about. So today, I would like to talk about going back to the classroom. What was your school's preparation like? How did your students respond? Things like that. So especially with us uh, representing two states, three schools, I'm sure we're going to have some shared experiences and some unique experiences for, for, our, for our campuses. What did your school do to physically prepare for the students to return? And did your school do anything that, or did your school try to mentally prepare the teachers for the students' return or anything like that? Uh, Nadia, you can go first since you're a uh, new one. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, I think I have an idea of what to kind of condense this down to because it was quite a crazy time, put it in lack of a better term. I will say, you know, as much of disarray as everybody was at the time, I think no one could have prepared for this. And I don't think there was a right way to do this. I think everybody had their own way because we were adjusting as we went. Um, but I do know overall as the state of Texas, it was pretty flexible, which at the time a lot of people had some fears about. Personally, at my school, I felt very lucky to have been guided by a principal who took COVID precautions and safety very seriously and put our teachers and staff's safety at the forefront of all of our plans in terms of going back into the school year for 2020. So I think in discussions with our administration at the school, we, number one, started off with physical planning for teachers going into the building because we were going to have students still be virtual for the first couple of weeks of the school year. They had really thought out the best ways to social distance to make sure that, you know, there are procedures in place for what to do in case of XYZ situations happen. And overall, you know, I think everybody felt pretty nervous to go back into it given the circumstances. but. I felt very comfortable and lucky to have the leadership that I did um, at my school. So I think, you know, it could have been the best it could have been. <laughs> so that was our experience. So you felt comfortable with your leadership's preparation, the best that they could do, given the new situation. Yeah. And I think also I had the perspective of this is the best that they can do right now with what we're given. Yeah. And you have everybody's safety at the forefront of everything. And I think that was personally my main concern. Um, I do feel like people had the best intentions, but they were limited in what they were able to do due to policies put forth by other people over their head, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. My school, I don't remember if we were virtual for the first couple of weeks, probably 
with that said, my school did a pretty good job of with the resources they had available. They did a pretty good job of making sure we were able to social distance as much as possible. I know that for our district or for my school, it's a little bit harder because we had a lot of kids who were going to come back. There's just no doubt about that. So, you know, our class sizes were bigger than I would have liked, but I understood that a lot of our kids found safety inside of our school building, more so at home. So I knew that they were going to come back. So at first I was unnerved, but then I realized it was bigger than me and I had to take take into account my students' situations and knew that they were going to be coming back in larger numbers. Sorry, Patrick. What about you? What about Georgia? So my experience is unique in that I've experienced two different COVID opening responses. The first one was at um, a middle school called Greenbrier Middle School. And uh, this was during 2020-2021 school year. We were among the first schools to go back during the uh, pandemic in Georgia. And I was really scared being that I had just had my son with my wife. And I was terrified that I was going to somehow bring it back to him. But the way that school handled opening during the pandemic, it it assuaged my fears. For one, we had an A-B schedule. So half the students would come on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. The other half would come on Thursday, Tuesday and Thursday, and then they'd flip. They made upgrades to the school filtration system to where it was what they said it was a hospital grade. They also sprayed down the entire school every night. And um, we had to where students had to walk on either side of the hall. So it was kind of like a racetrack almost where they had to go yeah. around. Even if their class was on the other side of the hall, they kept like that to manage the flow of traffic. Students had to sit every other desk. And then during lunch, they had those plastic borders up, or the plastic dividers. The reason why they had them up is because obviously you can't eat with a mask on. And if you sneeze, they were worried about the particulates coming from the sneeze, getting right. on someone else's food and spreading it that way. But then eventually we went back to meeting full time where everybody came every day. And I got to say, I was, I was very, I was, I was relieved almost, you know, to, to see that they were taking it seriously because uh, this school was affluent. I'll go ahead and say that. So they could afford to do stuff like that. Then I go to another school the next year, uh, Bel Air, Bel Air K through eight. And this school, I can't say much because I don't want to talk bad about people, but it was not run well. It was terrible. I remember we had a new outbreak. I want to say every every month we had at least two or three to where we had to stay home for the rest of the week. Oh, those first three months were terrible. No one had confidence in the principal. The principal would have us stay in, like, so, like, we'd have these teacher work days, right? But they were supposed to be cleaning down the school. If you're cleaning down the school with chemicals that would kill the COVID virus, you probably would think those are pretty strong chemicals. I don't want people there. Well, my principal didn't. And he said that we had to report. I had to end up calling people down the board, like, hey, yo, this is what's going on. I don't know if this is. You know what I'm saying? Legal. I don't think you should be doing this, but this is what your principal is doing. And they had to call him like two or three times about the way he ran things. So, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah. And then I have a whole list of things. Where, like I had to talk with the superintendent about him, that principal. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've had two different experiences with COVID openings, right? One good one, one god awful. Yeah, I was originally, when I was thinking about it, I was trying to think back about how we enter, we had to wait, we had to racetrack ordeal where the kids had to walk one way 
even if their classroom was right next door, they still had to go mm-hmm. all the way around. I remember, I, I, was, I think I was talking to you. I think we were talking. I think, remember, George had asked us what we were doing, and you had said your school had that A-B schedule of half the kids coming one day and then other half coming the other day. And I remember seeing that. It was like, wow. That's the, that's the way to do it. Like, yeah, it, it was confusing because you no. would forget what you taught one class or what one class didn't get. But like you said, man, that that was the best thing I think you could have done on the search. Standard. I mean, with, with so much unknown at the time, I think I just hear that. I'm like, wow, if only we all could have done that. Yeah. I, I have a question, Patrick. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you did the AB schedule, were all of your kids back in person or was it still like a hybrid? I'm glad you asked that. Um, so students, if they wanted to be completely digital or virtual, excuse me, they could. And they were teachers devoted to that, to those students. But oh. if you wanted to come in, yeah, you, you could come in um you know, your A or B schedule. So you didn't have the pleasure of teaching both at the same time? Uh, yes, actually I did. So I had <laughs> some students that were strictly virtual and then I had some students that were in person. And then like the way that would happen is I would teach during my planning period. So I didn't get, I didn't get time off. So, and then I don't know if you remember that time, but I was also teaching my Japanese club. So like I was really working like a solid nine hours a day. Oh my goodness. So I think for Nadia and I, I think we both had hybrid classes in the sense that same class, turn on Zoom, have kids show up on Zoom while mm-hmm. teaching kids in person at the same time. Mm. And I like to go on the record right now and apologize to my Zoom kids. If they do listen, y'all were neglected by me. I do apologize. Going it's back hard, to that man. screen while being in person is just so hard. And it's like, you want to? I turn on the screen. I'm like, okay, I'm going to make sure that I engage with my at-home kids, pull them into a lesson. Mm-hmm. And then 10 minutes in the class, I'm just focused on in-person mm-hmm. until someone reminds me. It's like I had to do digital for my Japanese club students because my principal said, hey, we can't exclude anybody. If they want to join, they got to join. So what I ended up doing was I had a, a projector. And so I would put the Zoom on the projector so that students in my class could see them too. And so they could feel like they were actually participating. But that's very difficult to manage, even with that super hard. Yeah, I will say, at least for us, you know, the first couple of weeks for sure, the school year in 2020 were absolutely virtual. But we started, I think, I don't know, Stephen, if you, your school did this, but Texas TEA, the Texas Education Agency, told us that we did have to implement phases throughout the year in order to get back to fully in person. So do you remember, did you have to do that or were you? They probably did. I was just probably not paying attention and just trying to do my job, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. So I think it was kind of a thing of, you know, you had to have 30 phases, whatever steps you were willing to take or your principal or admin decided to get back to fully in person, whatever. But the duration would be up to the school to decide. But obviously there's external pressures. Right. Our first phase was 100% virtual. And then I think our second phase was when we had kids come in, but all kids were consolidated to one classroom and they were not moving in the building. So what we did was we actually potted students and that was for a safety measure, right? So that we could contact trace in a way, but the way they potted students was very controversial. It was based on test scores from the previous years. It was based on sped accommodations all of those good things and so 
I see your face, Patrick and Steven. Um, yeah, so it was, it was controversial in that way. And so, you know, yes, we kept our safety at the forefront, but at the expense that we did kind of influence positively or negatively, who's to say our students learning environment. Um, <laughs> so that was the second phase. We had kids stay in the classroom and they were potted. And then third phase, I think that's when kids started to move around, but kids had the option of staying virtual all year. And so basically, you know, I think like you were talking about earlier, as far as having to go hybrid, it was difficult. Absolutely. But luckily we implemented, at least for my department, you know, the science department, we fully had online platforms so that we didn't have like a discrepancy on what kind of materials kids were using or whatever. So we kept the platform the same. All my kids used the same um, uh, digital platform, whether I was using whatever I was using, all kids had access to it. I did my best to make sure that my kids in person had the same stuff that my kids at home did, even if I wasn't able to explain everything to my kids at home, because to to be fair, in my defense, the kids at home didn't always have their cameras on and were on mute. So if they're not talking, it's hard for me to hear them. I'm just throwing that out there. Makes it difficult. I think we all know, or we can we can all make an educated guess as to what students were doing when we were teaching digital. I think oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> I don't know if y'all have this suspicion they were actually, you know, trying super hard. I feel as though they were probably playing video games, right? Or just turning on so they could tell their parents, see, I was here. He saw my face. And then you know, <laughs> back playing games. Yeah. Well, no, I, so I have a student, I, I've had students leave me messages in my Google Classroom saying, hey, mister, you forgot about us. Hey, mister, can you say something to us? I had students who actually left me messages. Man, props to your kids. Uh, you tell me. Now, it was only a couple of them. I do agree with them. I know some of them even told me about the games that they were playing, but I did have quite a few who were reminding me that I neglected them. And sometimes I'll get a notification in class from a new Google Classroom message. I'm like, who's sending me a message? I go look at it real quick. Uh, Mr. We're still here. Oh, oh crap, my bad. And then, you know, I, I talk to him for like three minutes and then forget about him again. Yeah, man, it's difficult, super hard. Yeah. Even more so when they kept the cameras off. Oh my gosh, yeah. I'm curious, how did you all find ways to keep your kids engaged? Okay, I'm going to start with a little backstory, Mm -hmm. a little bit of context. So I was very lucky. I didn't have to say face the same challenges that a lot of my colleagues did as far as building relationships with kids, because that year I actually looped up with the students that I had the year previously. So the year before or when COVID broke out, so 2019 to 2020, I was teaching seventh grade science. And then when we went virtual, had the summer, I came back as an eighth grade teacher. So I had a lot of the same students or we had some sort of rapport, even if we didn't know each other. So I didn't feel like personally, I had a really hard time keeping kids engaged because we already have this like pre-existing relationship. So for you all who maybe had a whole new batch of kids or, you know, I just, I'm, I'm curious. I feel like everybody had their own way of keeping kids engaged. Want to know what you all did or challenges you found or positive things. Okay. For me, creating relationships is the easiest part about being a teacher because I'm childish. I watch anime. I play video games. I watch basketball. I watch football. I love shoes. So like all the things that I like, my students like at that first school, it was difficult because 
I was the only black male teacher that student has ever had, that class has ever had. So that school had never had a black male teacher. So I think they have some notions about me. And of course, you know, the new teacher, they get the, you know, the, the, the hazing, I guess. Students aren't going to listen to you. Students aren't going to do their work. But once they found out, okay, one, the standard is the standard, right? You're here. I gave you the information. Come to me if you need help. But this is the standard. Regardless, they found, okay, he ain't budging on that. And then two, oh, man, he's actually kind of cool. It let me have freedom to do things like play games to reinforce our lesson. Because the whole time they're playing a game, they're actually learning. Doing stuff like instead of, because I teach ELA. So instead of looking at Shakespeare, we're actually listening to Lupe Fiasco or Most Deaf or Common when it comes to figuring out figurative language or theme or stuff like that. So that's some of that stuff. And then the fact that I spoke Japanese, they didn't know that. They figured, oh man, this dude, he's talented, he's smart. It made it easier to develop relationships with them. It gave me the opportunity to make to take risks with my students. See, I'm in the same boat. Building relationships with students is probably the easiest thing for me to do. Because like Patrick said, we have a lot of the same interests. We literally talk about a lot of the same shows. And for my population, I can actually relate because I've been to some of their countries. Heck, I've been to some of the towns that they that they lived in, like mm-hmm. with my experiences in the Marine Corps. So once they find that out, they're like, holy goodness gracious. Uh, the Japanese is always good, especially when you show them the alphabet and you start writing in hiragana and they're like, wait, what? I'm like, they love that. And then one thing I also do is I bring my my middle school experience into the classroom. Mm-hmm. So slowly starting the very beginning of the year, tell them about my middle school journey. I tell them how I had to repeat the eighth grade because I got kicked out of school. And so that it's easier for them to relate to me because I am them. And I make it a point to also share very early in the year, my personal background with how I grew up. So they know that just because their home life is a certain way doesn't mean that they cannot be successful. So growing up wasn't easy for me. I came from a broken home. I was raised by my dad for a good part of my life. So that experience allows the students to relate with me, even though their experience is special to them. They still know that not everyone comes from a helpful or not a helpful, a fulfilling two-parent household with a dog and a picket fence. So uh, those stories I share early in the year, so they know. And then, you know, also some I also bring on the Marine Corps corporal hat sometimes. So they know that I'm firm, but fair. So it's a nice little balance because they know that, hey, Mr. King, Coach King's going to look out for us. But if he has to put the hammer down, he's going to put the hammer down. Don't take it personally. It's just you messed up. You got to get corrected and we keep going about the business. So I think another thing that Steven, I know you do, and I assume Nadia does because she knows you as a person. We're humble. Uh, A lot of teachers come in to school with its automatic disdain for the students, almost like we're enemies. And I think the three of us understand, you know, we were once in middle school too. We don't like being treated like children. We don't like being coddled. We don't like being patronized. And the more we treat them like adults and give them responsibility, give them respect, the more they're going to respect us. I feel like that is the commonality for people who know how to create relationships to treat them with respect. I try to tell teachers who are struggling, try to get, offer them pieces of advice. And when they don't take that advice and then I still hear about them struggling, I'm just like, look, I'm telling you, this is what you should do. And they don't do it. I was like, and uh, to bring up your other thing, Nadia, one thing that I found that is successful also, and I feel like every teacher should know this, but not every teacher practices it, practices it is show interest in your students' 
lives, like their school life, like their sport club. So many teachers that I know, especially coming back from a pandemic, right? Because these kids were just isolated for a large period of time. They're coming back. They're slowly trying to get involved in school activities. They need that support. They need to know that their teachers care about them. And there's so many teachers who I know who do not support the kids. And I get it. We all have lives. understand that. But to build those relationships, to show an interest in what those kids enjoy outside of school goes a long way in building relationships in that classroom and getting them on your side and getting them engaged. You engage what they love, they'll come back and they'll they'll sit up a little bit straighter for you. They'll pay attention if you saw them do good at this game. If you can acknowledge that they scored this point, they just they want to be loved on. I will say on that note too, I think, you know, again, not to overgeneralize here, but what I have noticed, especially in those times where engagement and relationships were so important and went hand in hand together is teachers who complained about their lack of engagement or their ability to, I don't know, reach their kids, whatever that means, were the ones who would check out immediately at four o'clock, not attend any extracurriculars, or make it a point to just talk to their parents or talk to their family or talk to the kid about their interests. And so I think if it's just like, you know, for example, our the first kids that were back in person were kids who did athletics and after school sports and stuff. And they had games. The, the teachers who showed up and were there were the ones who were always, 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 you know, the first person that kids would gravitate towards or talk about or be like, oh, it was so cool, Mr. Miss, whatever was there and like they'd go and talk to them and make it a point to actually pursue a relationship with that teacher too it's just a matter of showing up like you said and I think that's a huge that's a small thing that a teacher can do that has such a huge effect I want to say this one quick thing on that I I'm going to say it and any teachers who listen to this if it applies to you so be it I hate teachers who treat this like a nine to five or eight to four I hate it I'm not saying you have to go home and work like do work at home or anything. I'm not saying that, but this is more than an eight to four. To be successful, you have to be invested in your students outside of the classroom. This is a people business, man. What's that? This is a people business. It is. You can't can't treat this like you're purely transactional. Those students are humans too. And humans deserve respect and they deserve reciprocity. If If you want them to sit down for an hour, and listen to you talk about why a, a pacing is important in a story, the least you could do is show some interest in them outside the classroom. Yeah. I mean, so absolutely 100% agree with that. Like, you can't. And I think what you were saying earlier, too, Patrick, about, you know, some teachers walking in and having this kind of like hat of, I'm bigger than you. I know what. I know what I'm doing. And if the kids don't follow what I say, they're just ungrateful or they're not taking ownership of anything and are, you know, bratty kids. But, you know, something that I I feel very thankful about at the school that I had was a lot of teachers were like-minded like us in this way of like making sure to have those relationships with students. And they genuinely were invested. And I love that word invested because like, it's not just you're treating this kid as like great or whatever. Their academic performance is everything that you see. Like you see this kid as this multifaceted living human that has all of these other things going on that you as their teacher can also support. Mm. And so I think, you know, at the very beginning of lockdown, so when it was still the previous school year, when everything shut down in March, I don't know how 
you know, Patrick, they did it in Georgia, but I think Stephen and Texas, maybe we were in the same school district. We did the same thing, but correct me if I'm wrong. We just had to put lessons or tasks on Google Classroom asynchronously and just hope that the student turned something in. So some teachers could, from March to the end of the school year in May, could have just had a two month never seeing the kids again, right? And so for us, we had no expectations to run live lessons or anything like that. But because I knew that a lot of our kids were stuck at home, not allowed to leave, not allowed to see their friends. And that's detrimental, especially, I mean, for any kid, but especially young teenagers, young adolescents in middle school who are trying to understand their sense of identity, understanding their sense of self and their relationships with others. That was horrendous. And so I know a bunch of teachers and I just had Zoom sessions. It wasn't class related. We would just have Zoom on for two hours. If kids wanted to pop in and hang out, we could all hang out together. Sometimes we'd have like 10 kids join a Zoom session. We all just like watch a show together or, you know, play games with one another just for fun. And because everybody just prayed that connection. And yeah, I don't know. I know I went off on a tangent on that aspect. Like here in in Georgia, my district, we were expected to teach digitally, right? Just like we would when we, when the school year started in 2020, 2021, we still had to teach digitally. Students still had to check in, but they weren't. So I ended up doing what you suggested where it wasn't two hours. I think it was just one hour because we were expecting to teach them for one hour, but I would just end up getting on my PlayStation and then just telling them what they needed to know while we were playing because (laughs) what's more important that they're sitting there with the camera on or, or, that they're getting the information because they have it. You know what I'm saying? I'm putting it up on the platform digitally. As long as they hear my voice, we're playing Madden together, we're playing 2K together. And that also that also gave me the respect because I can give them that work and I can teach. So they knew I was nice. But to me, that was the most important thing. We're creating relationships away from each other and I'm giving them information. How can you be angry? Yeah, I backtrack a little bit. I, I have my Zoom on every day. I didn't turn like my Zoom for my class period time would stay on. I didn't have a lot of engagement from students there uh, who would show up, but the ones who did were they, they knew they could come and you know they chill for a little bit. And then that summer, I worked with Eagle Scholars, which is a college readiness program for our neighborhood seven through twelve. And you know I worked with all the scholars through the summer. We were virtual and everything. Uh, but then I would go to my school and deliver meals that the meal drop off or pick up. So I was there in the summer doing that because I got that gave me a chance to engage with my students when they're coming to pick up meals or any students for that matter. So they could see a friendly Tasby face. All that gave me a chance to make my face still be known. The kids still knew who I was, so on and so forth. And so I try to make sure that my face is seen year round even during the summer, but I haven't really taken a summer off since I started teaching, which I'm not complaining about because I choose to do it. Because when I work with Eagle Scholars, it doesn't feel like work per se, because I 100% believe in their mission of college readiness and everything. So it doesn't feel like work, but I I work year round. I'm doing it part-time this summer, even though I'm getting ready to have a baby here in a couple of weeks. So I don't mind Let the kids know who I am. And so when the next year starts, like my name is already known before classes start like they know that's mr king this is what he's about i heard this is what he's about and so i'm pretty sure the district is getting to know you very well too so when it comes time for a new assistant principal 
Hey man, why don't I throw out a oh, yeah, that's the end game. Oh yeah, and then once I do become a principal, which is the end game, I am going to strongly compel my teachers to invest in their students outside yeah. of the classroom. I'll get in some type of writing or something. I don't know how I finagle it, but it's going to happen. So teachers, beware if you come work for me. You will invest in your children outside the classroom. I think by manifesting that, Stephen, too, though, you're going to attract teachers that are like-minded in that yeah. regard. And I think that's all you can ask for is if you have a same, if you have the same sort of, oh God, this is what we said. Toxic positivity, first of all, is not here, but our admin always said of our staff, vision and values align. Mm-hmm. Which I think can be used in, in, in negative terms sometimes in situations, but overall the concept is kind of interesting. I, I I like it. I like the words. I don't like how it's always used. Okay. You said it better than I did. Absolutely. Yeah. But you were you gonna say something, Patrick? Oh no, nah, man, nah. Just you know, becoming a principal, there are things that you want to implement. And that's kind of why I'm leaving the United States, because the way I thought about it was this. If I become a principal, only work within that school. So then what happens when my students go up? We'll talk about that at a different time. Yeah. This ain't the place for that. One thing that I told my students, yes, I teach Texas history, but I know Texas history isn't what they need to be successful human beings. So I try to incorporate as much soft skills learning as possible. I try to develop those soft skills as much as possible using Texas history as my medium. So I get those test scores that they look good or whatever. But more importantly, my students are getting those soft skills. So when they do leave my classroom, they're still equipped for success in later grades. And so that's my main focus is developing soft skills. And, you know, COVID, those 18 months, they took a, our, our children's soft skills took a big hit. Those six months that they had virtual from mm-hmm. the end of the school year to the summer, the negative impact that it had on their soft skills just from that six months was, you know, their day one. And so we had to work a little bit harder to uh, try to, you know, help with the communication, teamwork, time management and everything. But I say I want to say, when you talk about moving up, mm-hmm. like being a principal at the school, but the kids move up, I just try to focus on those soft skills, build those soft skills up so that even if, like, even if they believe in the middle of the school year, like some of them do, I know that they have tools to go be successful in whatever environment that they go in. And How are the parents for you guys? Like, were they solely concerned about grades? Were they supportive of you guys? Were they combative? How was, and I understand that for the most part, it's going to be a mixed bag, but like, how did, how did that work with you guys, the partnership with the parents? So I think Stephen and I, for the most part, have the same demographic of, of kids in, in certain ways. Um, there are certain overlaps and obviously certain differences, but I think parent engagement at our school has always been pretty low for many different reasons, specifically socioeconomic. A lot of our parents are working parents, and so they don't have the luxury to be as engaged as they may like in certain times and or... Honestly, we also had some families that straight up just didn't really (laughs) engage with their students' academics, and that was not their priority. I will say COVID changed that because a lot of our families and parents, especially, especially parents, were considered those that were essential workers. And so... What actually really surprised me was our parents and families really, really took COVID seriously as well. And so, you know, they were not about, uh, we had a lot of pushback when we started inviting kids to school. They, they, a lot of them were very worried about sending their children back into school and majority wanted to keep their students at home. And I think overall, like, again, like academics were not the focus, not mm. the primary focus. 
And so again, I think it goes back to making sure that you have a relationship with the family as well. And I think by doing that in the ways that I did kind of encourage academics as like a side thing, because they knew that I had the children's best interests at hand mm. or in mind whenever I was reaching out to them. It wasn't like willy nilly, like, oh, I'm calling you because of X, Y, Z behavior or just negative, negative, negative. Right, right, right. A lot of students hear from their teachers when there's a call home. But yeah, I made an intentional effort to build relationships with the family and make education like a secondary thing. But I would say overall, like COVID really changed things in that. I understand. And I want to kind of give some background on it. It's like the reason why I asked, because at this new school that I went to, the parents were very involved. But instead of them being interested in, so what is it about? So like say they messed up on something, right? And I told parents, say, hey, I don't really care about grades. Grades don't matter to me. I care about, are you grasping the concept? And if you don't understand it, how can I help you understand it? The parents didn't care about that. All they cared about was A's and B's. So the process wasn't as important as the result. And so I, that's kind of what I'm trying to get to, where parents concerned about the result or the process. And if they were more concerned about the results, how did the interactions go when it came to that? So I apologize for not being more clear. Oh, no. So due to my school's demographics, a lot of our parents aren't engaged in the result or the concept. Like That's not their concern. Their concern is, are their students safe? Ooh. Are their students acting up, maybe? That focus on education isn't as strong because we have a lot of uh, new like immigrants, refugees. Gotcha. Right? So education, while important, and they do care, it's just not on that. Look, like if you had a Maslow's hierarchy of important, yeah. education would be on there, but there's just other things that take precedent over there. And we got, but another thing, you know, our language barrier also makes it difficult Ooh. to, for parents to feel comfortable talking to us and for us relaying that information to parents. We, I, we have a high Spanish speaking population in our district in general, but at my school, we also have high Swahili, Nepali, Burmese, Pashto, Farsi. And those parents are often left to the wayside because like the district might hand something out for inf information-wise, but half one side would be English, the other half Spanish. Give this to all your kids. So what about the other seven languages I have in my class? What are their parents supposed to do? So sometimes the parents can't ask those questions because they're not given the information in a language that they can consume. So they know how to ask those questions because it's not being given out to them. Wow. I will so say, classroom discussions must be amazing in guys' classroom. It can be. It can be. And it can be uh, a headache also. But I will say we just had this PD a couple of days ago from the district, which gives me hope because it was talking about increasing our our relationships with families and how we can go about building stronger relationships with families. And hopefully the teachers who decide to stay at my school are open to the idea of doing a little bit of extra legwork to get those families mm. engaged. I'm hoping, I am hopeful on that count. Uh, it's been something I've been struggling with because, you know, I feel defeated sometimes when I try to get a hold of a parent and I can't communicate with them properly. I try to call a translator, got to leave a voice message for the translator to call me back and stuff like that. So it's just hard like that, but I am hopeful with this new initiative to push for getting parents to care more. Now, hopefully we can get them 
more concerned about the, the kids grasping the concept and not the end result because I don't want parents coming to me and saying, why does my kid have a B? Why does my kid have a C? And not understand that what their kid is learning. So fingers crossed. I think, Stephen, too, for our, our experiences are similar in certain ways, but I, in this regard, had the luxury of having a pretty monolithic ESL need. Um, so most of our ESL students were Spanish speaking. But yeah, I think overall, like like you brought up that point of, you know, the parents have a hard time, especially for our population was primarily immigrant population too. They don't know how to navigate the American school system. Yeah. They don't know what grade sometimes, I mean, they know the scale, but they were like, what's the difference between a 60 and a 71, like, or a 60 and a 68. I mean, that's failing or like a 80 to 90, whatever. Overall, like, I think again, yeah just helping their kids understand what it is that is expected of them, I think is really hard for a lot of those parents to grasp because again, no point of reference or had that experience and um, can't really also, if we tell them sometimes too, like here are the things that they need, they don't have the resources to really support the kid in maybe the way that we would want them to. And so, yeah, I think that there's also kind of that responsibility of, I think we had a, I don't know if you guys had this, Stephen, we had a, a community liaison. So before COVID, she would actually have interested. Yeah. So she would have classes to bring parents who are interested in for just parents of like, here's how the American education system works. Here's what grades are like. If a teacher is asking you, listen, here's how you can, here's how you can improve and help your student. I don't know. I think getting the parents involved separately is important and teaching them to, um, our expectations of students and how to also provide support. And I think too, sometimes, yes, we can feel defeated, but I think something that I've learned among the very few years I've been teaching was to do a lot of the front loading at the beginning of the school year. And just as long as I like wiped myself out of all my energy at the school year, at least like I got the ball rolling. So if I had contacted all of my families just to introduce myself at the beginning of the year, if I had something that came up a couple months into the year, they weren't like, oh, who are you? Like, <laughs> you know, they had an idea of who I was. And at that point, you know, could go from there. Well, thank you. So in the beginning, I started off with a quote that said, instead of worry about identifying gaps, we should applaud children and young people for what they dealt with and ask them what extra things that they learned while they were away. So I like to go on record and say that for my students who are about to graduate and move up to eighth grade, who I will be seeing some of again because I will be teaching eighth grade uh, next year. I want to say that y'all did something that we, no one here in this call ever had to do. That was go to middle school during a pandemic where the world shut down. No one who you know, no adult you know in your life did that. So y'all did do that. So that's, that is a claim to fame that y'all have that we do not because we have no idea how we would have handled that had it happened during our time without, I mean, let's, we don't know. We could talk a good game or whatnot, but let's just be real. No adult in your life knows what it would have been like to go home during that and come back. And y'all bounce back and you will continue to get stronger from it. And teachers who taught during this time, y'all did it too. Y'all were thrown into a situation that none of us was prepared for. I don't know. I think maybe 2% of teachers, maybe I'm just throwing that number out there, knew about virtual digital learning and using Google Classroom and everything like that. But y'all made it work and continue to make it work. So I know the year's long and 
we can feel defeated sometimes, but you should, we should be able to hold our heads high knowing that we also taught during the time where no one else had to teach. So when the administrators come in there and be like, this is how it should be done, we can look at them and be like, well, you never taught during the pandemic, so how can you tell me how it's done? I'm just throwing that out there. So sorry, I just wanted to get that out there. So thinking about that whole year, 2020, 2021, all your successes and your challenges, how did you come out as a better educator after that year or a better person? I'm going to give you props, Stephen, because I really, really love the quote that you selected to start us off with, because I think what that year made me realize was I needed to shift my perspective from deficit thinking to, I don't know what the word would be, but looking for the positives and realizing that there really is no such thing as deficits. You have to look at other areas of growth and kind of look at the holistic picture. I think that was what I learned that year. I think for me, it changed how I view grading. That was when I realized, man, these grades really don't mean nothing. I don't really care about (laughs) grades. I care about the journey. That's what I care about. As long as you show me you're working towards that journey, (laughs) my mentor put it like this. That's my grade book. I put what in it, what I want to put in it. So if I feel like you've earned some bonus points due to the progress that you've made, then I'm going to give it to you because, yo, like like you guys said, man, these kids have lost a lot. And this is, I feel like, the wrong time to be a hard butt on, like, late grades and stuff like that. Does it get to a point where it could be excessive? Probably. Probably. Because there's exceptions to every rule. But for the most part, bruh, if it's a, you can turn it in next week if you really have to. Don't worry about it, man. So that's the way it made me, it really made me look at grading policy and how the effect it has on the student. And lastly, I think, you know, when I first started to teach, I always said I wanted to be a whole person teacher. I want to teach a whole person and that just a subject. But that year allowed me the opportunity to put those words to action and actually focus on skills to make my students better. And that has become my primary focus and will be my focus no matter what content that I teach. I'll use that content as the medium that I need to But my most important goal is to build stronger soft skills in my students so they can go on and be successful in whatever their academic and professional journey takes them. And that's my main goal because I I do want to build better people. So with that said, we will say good night, good day, good morning. Again, wherever you're listening, thank you for listening. And until next time, we'll all sit down and have some apples and coffee. Thank you.